right, Venture, it is great to see you here today. I'm seeing a bunch of faces in the room. I know we've got folks that are joining us online as well. Hey, can you do me a favor? I want to piggyback off of what Jenny just talked about. Do me a favor, grab this, that invite that she just mentioned. I know the QR code was up there on the screen. Uh, we'll push that out on social media later as well. For some of us, I know we'd rather text that to somebody than hand deliver. Maybe that's a little bit more convenient or that's how uh, who you want to invite is more wired to receive an invitation. I want to pray over these. Here's why. Uh, if you're newer to our church, and I know some of you are. You weren't around this past fall when we did what we call our spiritual growth journey. It was called One Life. We've kind of turned a corner here in our church, and we've said, you know what? We exist not just for us, but for those who are not here yet. So during that One Life journey, perhaps you remember we wrote some initials on light bulbs and then we put them up on the displays up here. Now it's living out there in our lobby space. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're going to invest in? Do you remember this era of our church? Do me a favor right now. Call to mind that person. Or maybe God is nudging you right now. There's somebody else in your sphere of influence. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's even a family member, somebody that you know. They're living right now in a way that maybe, maybe even feels far from God. They're not recognizing God's involvement directly in their life. But can I suggest to you, this season... This is a time to invest and invite because studies tell us during Christmas and even Easter time, but especially Christmas time, maybe they're shopping in the store and they hear a Christmas carol and there's a line in it that talks about our God. And it kind of, the Holy Spirit uses that in such a way to nudge them and he would invite you to follow up on that nudge. So right now, call to mind that person. Make a commitment right now that you are going to deliver this invitation to them. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing, maybe just to stick it in there between your hands. Hold that in your hands right now. Maybe if you dare, go ahead and whisper their name before God. Let's pray. Let's pray and see what God would do with this. Father, as we're bold, as we summon up courage, as we get intentional and think about who is it inside our sphere of influence that you might use us to bring them closer to you. God, we know this Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve, there's two of them, and then there's one Christmas Eve Eve even. that We could be intentional to bring somebody to see you. Lord, would you use that service and the invitation that we offer? Would you use this moment of boldness? Would you use this moment of just intentionally walking across the street or to the cubicle next door or texting a family member? Would you use these intentional invitations to further your purpose? And it's your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were here last week, uh, you heard me say this, but I want to say it just in case you missed it last week. There's been a thing in the life of our church. For years, we've said Christmas Eve is a gift we want to give you, so you just kind of show up. We're going to serve you. We're not doing that anymore. In light of what I just talked about, here's the statement. Christmas Eve is no longer our gift to you. Rather, Christmas is God's gift to the world. So, he needs you 
to be a gift giver. We need a small army in order to roll out the red carpet for the folks that you're going to invest in and invite to come to join us for Christmas Eve services. There's a 4 and a 6 on the 24th. There is a 6 p.m. on the 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. We need to roll out the red carpet at each of these services. So we've got a QR code. We put this up last week. Maybe you want to pull out your smartphone right now, aiming at that. We still need some of you, many of you, a whole bunch of you showed up in a big way last week and said, yeah, we're willing to do whatever it takes. Thank you. We still need several of those volunteer positions filled. Do me a favor. Sign up. Be a part of that. It's going to be a fun couple of days of serving. Can I also say this? You do not want to miss Christmas Eve services this year. Part of the reason why we did a Christmas Eve Eve service is because we want to catch some of you before you leave town Friday night and make, make it a point to be here. Here's why. Think Christmas Eve meets, traditional Christmas Eve meets a petting zoo. That's all I'm going to say on the topic. You don't want to miss Christmas Eve. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited about it. It's going to be it's going to be pretty cool. Okay. So last week we kicked off our Christmas Eve series or Christmas series. This is week 2 of it. Last week we talked about the idea that God gives us presents. And then we kind of keyed into the idea that he one of the gifts that he's given us is his presence. He's here. Emmanuel, God with us. We talked about how there's four gifts that we find several hundred years before Jesus became a baby in a manger that became a gift that God gave humanity in the fullness of time. And he still gives these gifts today. Last week we looked at presents. Here's the passage of Scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. We know him as Jesus. To us a son is given, we just sang this, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Last week we looked at this idea of Wonderful Counselor. And the best counselors, they have the gift of presence. They're with you, reflective, active listening. That Jesus is God with us. He's Emmanuel, his presence. Mighty God, that's what we're looking at this week. Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And the challenge is this season to embrace the present. Be intentional. Why? We looked at this quote last week from uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. It says, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. But today, today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. This Christmas season is a gift that God gives you. Will you embrace the present? Will you lean in to the opportunities that he has in store for you right now? And each week during this season, we're calling each other to say this. God's gift to you, the gifts that we're unpacking together, should inform your gift to others. In other words, he gives this gift to you and it's for you and it's to be worked through you as a gift to the world. That's why we invest and we invite. That's why those invitations are so important because his gift is meant to be reflexive and go through you to others. All right, shall we unwrap our gift for this week? I love this. This is a gift, literally a gift that was given to our church. Uh, We've got a couple of gals that uh, over the years have given us some gifts as a church. Uh, This particular, these are from Judy Whiteman. Some of you might recall her. I'm going to put the short one up front. These actually were carved out of olive wood. They come from Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, and these were a gift given to our church years ago. Perhaps you've noticed them out there in the lobby. I stole these from the nativity scene in the lobby. Don't worry, I'm going to put them back. 
Also, you might notice if you're looking out there, there's a stable that these are housed in. These three kings from Orient are. That stable was a gift that was given to me just a, uh, well, last year, actually, by a gal that was a part of our church. She just moved into assisted living up in northern Indiana, but some of you know Rose Crane well, and she gave that as a gift to our church, and so it's out there in our lobby, and we get to enjoy it this year. We're talking about the kings because they represent what we're leaning into today, this week. It's that phrase, mighty God. When I think mighty God, I think power. The wise men, are they kings? Are they not? We're going to unpack that here in a minute. But they represent power. We're going to talk about power. Last week we talked about God's presence. And we talked about how it's not just we talked about those omni words, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing. Last week we talked about omnipresence, that God is all everywhere. But the challenge is, don't think of him just as all everywhere, but that he's right here. He has manifest presence today in your life, right here. Emmanuel, God with us. The omni word that we're looking at this week is the word omnipotent. That God is all-powerful. Here's the challenge. Remember, there's two sides to the same gift. God is all-powerful, but you're not. I'm not. And I think we need to be reminded of that. Now, can I just say this? Can I own something, a truth? Power kind of seems like a weird thing to be talking about at Christmas, doesn't it? It seems a little bit weird to be leaning into this idea of power this time of year. We're supposed to be all hot chocolate and enjoying lights this time of year. Power, that seems a little bit weird. But is it? Think about your family dynamic, maybe right now. Some of you might be in the middle of these conversations right now. Are there some power plays at work in your families right now? Who's going to be hosting Christmas? Who will capitulate to that idea? Is Are there some power dynamics at play as you work out even your holiday plans? How about in-laws? Some of you are newly married, and you're right now in that dance where you figure out who's going to be where for Thanksgiving, who's going to be where for Christmas. Dawn and I, we, we figured this out. We got married in 1995. Dawn graduated from college on a Saturday. We got married the next Saturday. The next Saturday, we got back from our honeymoon, and by the fourth Saturday of that month, we were living in Las Vegas. Our very first Christmas, we spent together in Las Vegas. So we're not going to be at your house on Christmas, right? There's a power play. But they said, we'll see you and we'll raise you. Both of our families actually drove out to Las Vegas from Illinois to spend the Christmas season with us. And we were so grateful for them for that. We were homesick to see our families by then. Turns out history has a way of repeating itself. One of our boys just accepted an internship. He's going to be in Colorado. So guess, guess who's driving out there over the Christmas season to get all of the family together? Yep, yours truly. But who's going to blink first in the negotiations. Who's going to have the kids? Who's going to get to hang out with the grandkids? Do you see some power dynamics at play there? How about gift giving? You've got spenders versus savers. You've got the lavish gift givers versus the stingy. Who wins? There's a little bit of a power struggle sometimes that shows up even in the middle of the Christmas season. Why? Because it's human nature. 
there's a staff axiom we have here on our staff team. We'll ask the question oftentimes as we're wrestling through a problem, we'll ask the question, is this a problem to solve? In other words, can we like make a decision and fix it right now? Or is this a tension to manage? Is this always going to be something that we just need to live a little bit in tension on? I might suggest to you that this power thing is a tension to manage. Always in your life, because there's two sides to the same gift. By the way, power shows up often in your Bible. Look at this passage. I could show you a whole bunch of passages on the topic of power, but check this one out. See if you can see the tension to manage even here in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and there's a bit of a power struggle going on here. A tension to manage. They're calling his bluff on something. He's not bluffing because he's talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He says that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you but it's powerful. Do you see the tension here? Let's go back and finish reading that slide. In dealing with you, but it's powerful among you, for to be sure he was crucified in weakness. There's tension here in this power thing. Yet he lives by God's power. He was crucified, but he's alive in power. That's a tension to manage, right? Likewise, we are weak in him. Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Do you see the tension in this power dynamic? Might I suggest to you that your nativity set at home is a great display of this tension of power. There's a baby laying in the manger who grows up Christ the King, yet he's crucified for our sins. Do you see the tension in this power dynamic? I want to share with you today a tale a tale of three kings. Actually, we're going to say it's 3.5 kings. There's a couple of kind of insignificant to the story kings. We'll kind of give them a little bit of lip service, and then we're going to dial in on three kings. By the way, there's a book that I love. I recommend this book all the time. I just recommended it to a pastor friend just a couple of weeks ago. Actually, you probably will see some of this book show up in a series I'm planning for right now that kicks off at the beginning of the year. We're going to be kicking off a series called Number One Follower. And here's the tagline you're going to hear a lot, that leadership is lauded. We talk about leadership all the time in our culture. We might even worship leadership a bit. But following is underrated. God calls us to be good followers, not just great leaders. We're going to look at that tension during that series in the book that I love. is called The Tale of Three Kings. It's a parable, a story of three kings in the Old Testament. King Saul, King David, upstart King Absalom. And this, it's, a, it's subtitled A Study in Brokenness, and it's looking at the tension of power and how you wrestle that through in your heart. I love that book. If you're looking for a great book, a simple book to read during your downtime in the Christmas season, I would recommend that book to you. Okay, a tale of three, let's say 3.5 kings. There's a couple of insignificant kings to mention. Except they're not really insignificant because here we go. A point five, this is Caesar Augustus. He's not insignificant. He is Caesar, right? He's the emperor of Rome. 
And then kind of a local king called Quirinius. If you've got your Bibles and you want to open them up, I'm in Luke right now. Go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of your New Testament Bible. If you want to grab those Bibles that are underneath the seat in front of you and pull those out, you could even look Luke up in the front in the table of contents and go there, the third chapter of the New Testament. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Then what happened? Everyone went to their own town to register, including Joseph took Mary. A significant journey. Actually, it wasn't that far, easy for me to say, I wasn't nine months pregnant like Mary was riding on the back of a donkey. That was a long way for her to ride. It was not a very far walk for Joseph to walk. Why are these insignificant kings to our story? Well, they don't play a big part in the story. We're not talking about them other than to note that Jesus, as the gift to the world, was given in the fullness of time. These kings that are mentioned here are just kind of placeholders to tell us this is the time period that we're talking about for this story. By the way, last week I kept using that phrase, in the fullness of time. I should give you the chapter and verse for that. That's Galatians chapter 4. Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and he's saying, listen, Jesus showed up at just the right time. When in the fullness of time had come, God sent his son so that we might be adopted into God's family. Why is that the fullness of time? Have you ever heard all roads lead to Rome? If you could take a Google image during the first century of top-down, looking down at the known world at the time, you would notice Roman roads that spiderweb all over the empire, and they all lead to Rome. Because Roman engineers would travel along with Roman legions. And they would build these Romes so that the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. By the way, when Rome put you under its peace, it meant that its boot was on your neck. But it kind of kept the peace. And these Roman roads, it's those same roads that Paul and other early missionaries traveled to go all over the known world at the time. And tell people the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So Jesus shows up a baby in the manger in the fullness of time. So these two kings that are mentioned here, well, they're insignificant to the story, but they're very significant to the setting, the time of when God shows up. So let's look, can we, at the tale of three kings? We've looked at the point five. Let's look at three others. How about King 1.0? King Herod. King Herod is an image of worldly, here's our word, power. So much so, if you're taking notes, I might encourage you to write this down, that King Herod, he's known as being lustful for power. That's a loaded word, isn't it? I feel like I need to give a PG rating to the message just by using that word. Oh, he wrestled with that side of the word as well. He was married several times. He actually killed one of his wives because he was jealous of her, get this, power. He was lustful for power. He needed and wanted more of it. He did some amazing things in the first century. He set the stage as well for what God did through Jesus and his early followers to advance the gospel message all over the world Let's look how he was lustful for power. I'm in Matthew now. If you go back two books from Luke, go back to Matthew. We're going to skip the genealogy in chapter 1. Let's look at verse 2 of Matthew. Check this out. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That phrase right there, it terrified a dude who was lustful for power. Why? Because he's king of the Jews. What are you talking about? By the way, King Herod was nervous about the Magi. We'll look at them in a bit. He was nervous about them. Why? Because Rome was nervous about this power from the east. They never really quite got their foot, their boot on the neck of the Medo-Persians to the east. And when these wise men, these magi, show up from the east, actually, Herod's dad had some run-ins with folks from the east. Actually, there was a big old battle that happened between Rome and that group of people from the east not far before Herod became king in the first century B.C. We saw, they said, his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Then King Herod heard this. He was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. That's an understatement. Why were they nervous? Well, because King Herod is quite mad. If he's torn up about this, they are nervous as well because he was very unpredictable. Now, it's been a while. It's been a while since we have gotten out our map of the Holy Land. Why don't you go ahead and pull that out right now. I want to double-click and zero in just a little bit, the area right around Jerusalem. I'm going to put that about right there on your map of the Holy Land. Jerusalem, double-click in. I want to show you some of what King Herod pulled off. It's kind of amazing what he did during his time. This is the Herodium. This is a scaled model. Actually, I took this picture right up here about halfway up the Herodium. This is an image from the top looking down. I'll explain that more here in just a minute. And this right here is an image of what you're looking at right down inside the top here. By the way, King Herod, he moved a mountain. He leveled this mountain and built this one up. King Herod did some amazing things. He was a phenomenal builder. This is one of his pleasure palaces that he built all over Jerusalem, all over that area surrounding Jerusalem. Masada, let me show you this. This is the Hebrew word uh, that you see in Psalm 18, O Lord, you are my rock, my fortress, my Masada, Masada. This is one of Herod's pleasure palaces next to the Dead Sea. Amazing, the history that happened there as well. Let me show you Caesarea Maritima. This is his pleasure palace next to the sea. He named it Caesarea after who? Another king, Caesar, right? Actually, there's still concrete, Roman-era concrete out there in this bay. He dug a deep-sea harbor because Israel didn't have one up until that point. Herod was a megalomaniac. He pulled off some amazing things. Actually, Jesus couldn't walk around Jerusalem without being reminded of Herod. His fingerprints were everywhere. Let me show you the pool of Siloam. Do you remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus heals the blind man? Well, this is one of the public works that Herod commissioned. He built that. How about the Antonia Fortress? This is this uh, uh, 3D rendered model. Let me show you the Antonia Fortress. This is at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. You're looking at the spot. Think Pontius Pilate. When Jesus is betrayed and he goes back and forth between Pontius Pilate and another King Herod, this is where Pontius Pilate washes his hands and says, He's, His blood is on your hands. Herod built that. He also built this structure. Let's look at the next picture the temple itself. Herod did some amazing things. He was a megalomaniac. It's said of Herod. Back at the pleasure palace of Masada, 
He could look down and he would host these dinner parties. Let me show you this picture, this next one. And they would, this was a water space. They would literally float ships in there and they would host mock battles. And these are some of the ballista that's left over from those mock battles. Let me show, the, show you this though. Herod, this pleasure palace, the Herodium, where ultimately he ended up being buried. This is a picture I took from the top of that. And I'm looking out this direction towards what? Oh, a little town of Bethlehem. How still we see the lie. Bethlehem is only three miles from the Herodium. King Herod, who was a megalomaniac, and he was just lustful for power. Well, let's jump ahead. Let's read the end of the story. What did he do with this news? Matthew chapter 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they told him they were going to do one thing, stop by his palace and tell him where the baby was born. They didn't do that. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem three miles away. And its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he learned from the Magi. He said, hey, I have power, problem, solution. Let me ask you this. As the master of your domain, King Stan, King Bob, King Sarah, As you think about your life, even this era, this season right now during the Christmas season, where where are you lustful for power? I want it my way. I need a little more of this to happen. Think about the the calendar that's getting ready to happen. Think about your day-to-day life over the next several weeks. Where are you lustful for power? That's King Herod. In our tale of three kings, let me show you King 2.0. This is... This is the wise men. Now, oh, I wish I had time to tell you more about the wise men. They come from an ancient tradition. We don't know a whole lot about the wise men. There's some that you think you know, like like Christian tradition names them. That's hogwash. That's all. We don't know if that's true. That's not in the Bible. That's just tradition. Uh, There's a place you could go that that they say they've got the skulls of these guys on display. Uh, Probably not. We don't know a lot about the wise men. They probably weren't three kings from Orient. Rather, if you look at that word magi, what does that sound like to you? Magic. Yeah, same root word. You find a similar root word if you go back in your Bible to the book of Daniel. Interesting. The magi are this ancient group of Medo-Persians that held, they were They were kingmakers. Actually, they invited Daniel, if you read that book. They invite him into their fraternity. And it's entirely possible that Daniel, in the Old Testament, several hundred years before Jesus is born, that Daniel speaks to them about this prophecy that's in the Old Testament that a Messiah is coming. And then when they see the light... In my opinion, this is the Old Testament Shekinah glory when Moses says, show me your glory, and then he comes down off of the mountain and his face is just radiant for days afterwards. He walks around for like a month with a sunburn on his face because God showed him his glory. When God shows up, oftentimes his presence is accompanied by a great light. 
I think the Magi saw that. They saw that on their western horizon. They saw the flash of light that we read about in the New Testament that is God showing up and the heavenly host and the shepherds, and they hear that Jesus is here now. I think they, the wise men, they see this, and they come from a distance in the east. And I think they knew to be looking for it because Daniel told their forefathers that this is coming. If you're taking notes, Herod was lustful for power. The wise men, they were loving power. Now you could read that two ways, couldn't you? Loving power. In other words, I need more of it, I love this in my life. Or you could make it more of an active verb. The process of actively loving the power that we're going to read about here in a moment. If you're taking notes, I believe that this is what the wise men do. Worship, loving power, worship is what drove the wise men to visit Jesus. How about you? This season especially, is worship in your heart? This season. Let's read what happens. Let's look back in our text and look at it this time from the angle of the Magi. This is Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Can you relate to the wise men in this? Are you loving power? Are you actively loving power? Let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. They were watching. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may too go and worship him. Of course, we know that he is lying. But the Magi had suggested to him that that's why they were here. That's why they had made this journey. That's why they had gotten up early in the morning and got on their horses and ridden all the way across the long distance that they came. When you get up on Sunday morning and you make your way here, and you fight your way to church because of the misunderstanding that happened, the power struggle that's happening in the minivan on the way here. Your heart, where is your heart? This Christmas season, as you lean into the presence of God, are you actively loving power? Are you loving Jesus? Let's keep reading. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. They brought active gifts. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Part of loving is actively bringing the gift of even your presence before God. Loving power. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, right? But we can get so actively involved and actively caught up with all the busyness. Sometimes if we're not careful, we miss that the point is to worship him, to love 
him loving power. As you survey, as the master of your domain, as you look around your Christmas table, as you think about the time that you're getting ready to spend with your family, are you yielding your power to love and to worship his power, his strength? Tale of Three Kings, we've got uh, Herod, who was lustful for power, right? You've got the wise men. You've got mighty God. Wonderful counselor last week, this week, mighty God. This is the Jesus, the baby in the manger. Let's look at the next slide. Herod was lustful for power. The wise men, they were loving power. But Jesus, Jesus is a living power. He's the embodiment of power. The question is, are you bending your knee? Like the wise men, what of your power do you need to yield to his power? What strongholds do you need to let him knock down? Where are you yielding your power to love and to worship his living embodiment of humble strength? Shall we open? Remember I said that every gift has two sides. Here's the two sides of this same gift. The first side is this. It's a caution on power. You know, Christian power oftentimes is influence, and I I hear things like we need to take back Christmas from our culture. This is a power struggle, right? Or the culture wars. Are you going to say happy holidays or are you going to say Merry Christmas? Be oh so careful with your power. Can I caution you with this? The Christian history, the healthiest space where power happens in your history. Power over, let's talk about this, versus power under. The first 300 years of Christian history, here's an image I think that illustrates this. I think this is a pawn, those of you who know chess. It might be a bishop. It might be church power, but I think it's peasant power. It's a pawn is knocking over the king. This is a pretty good word picture of what happens over the first three or 400 years of Christian history. It's not power over. It's not us grabbing power and making people do what we say to do, but rather it's power from under, influencing for change. Let me show you from the Bible. Power under changes the world. It brings Rome to its knees. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul talking, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan feels like a gift. It wasn't a gift. It tormented him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I think this might have been a speech impediment. We don't know exactly what this is that Paul had. Maybe it was a physical feature. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power, there's our word, made perfect in weakness. It's a tension to manage, right? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Can I suggest to you that the baby in the manger is a very picture of the tension of power? Imagine being a baby. Imagine being the creator God of the universe confined to the body of a baby. Your legs are too weak to stand up or walk. 
If you want to get up and move, somebody has to carry you. Can you imagine being creator God confined into that space? Your arms are weak and your hands are uncoordinated. You have no pincer grasp yet. It's difficult for you to pick up and to hold objects unless they're handed to you. Your head is too large and too heavy, so heavy that your neck can hardly support its weight. Can you imagine being creator God in that space? You lose your understanding and your use of language. You can no longer speak to tell somebody what you're thinking, what you're feeling, or what you want. You can no longer control your bowel movements. Can you imagine? Creator God of the universe, somebody else has to clean up after you. You cannot feed yourself. You have to rely on somebody else or you're going to starve. You're weak. You're powerless. You're at the mercy of others. You're a baby. The caution When you think about power, God himself modeled power in constraint, power from under, not power over. Can I open up the other side of the gift that he gives? Remember, there's two sides to every one of these gifts. Here it is, invite and embrace his power. Remember, there's a tension to manage here. It is a gift, his power for you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We're going to have a moment here in a moment when we take communion together. Some of you, you have not yet embraced that power that God displays for you in your life. You have not yet asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. Can I just suggest to you here in a moment when the service is done, we're going to have a space and a time underneath the cross. Our pastor, Tony Johnson, is going to be hanging out under the cross, and he would love nothing more than to pray with you, to encourage you. Maybe you've got questions about this whole Jesus thing. We would love to meet you there and talk with you about that because his power in you, through you, is available for you. Let's talk about power through you. We started this message by praying over those invitations. Can I suggest to you that that's God's power on display in your life through you. God wishes to use you to put his power on display for others. There's all kinds of scriptural precedents for this. Let me show you Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and to somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. God's power on display in your life as well. I want to suggest to you, real quick, five ways you could do that this Christmas. As you think about his power on display through you, could I just suggest to you, number one, live life more abundantly. Smile more. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Are you living an abundant life this season? If not, do it. Number two, expect miracles this Christmas. What if? What if Jesus says in the book of Revelation, verse, or chapter 21, verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. What if? What if he wants to do that in your life this season? What if there's a, something, an unforgiveness, some kind of a relational conflict between you and somebody else? What if there's a miracle that could take place there this year? Number three, show love. Show love this Christmas. Actively put it on display. Maybe Leverage your resources, your time, your talent, 
your resources. To put love on display, how about number four? Give a reason for the hope that you have this Christmas. That invitation piece, know that that Christmas Eve service will offer an invitation. This is going to be a great opportunity for somebody that you know and you love who maybe is living far from God. They can see Jesus on display. Give a reason for the hope. Number five, know that Christ in you is the hope of glory this Christmas. Jesus is in you, his power on display in your life, and he wants to display it through you. The question is, will you let him?